What is it with castles in fantasy settings? Do thick walls even matter when your enemy can fly? Or when one man can become a mobile artillery emplacement? Or a team of special ops can turn invisible? How do we include high fantasy elements into a grounded medieval setting that feels realistic and immersive, but still elevating, wondrous, and exciting? Let's cultivate a setting. Welcome to the Worldcraft Club. I am your host, James, and we are a podcast all about creating deep, immersive settings for your audience to come back to time and time again. Today's topic is a tricky one, and it's all about one of our favorite words, tension. Two seemingly opposing ideas that, when juxtaposed, paradoxically create both the solid grounding and the exciting, expansive possibilities that we really want in our settings. But don't forget, if this show is useful to you, Go ahead and give us a five-star review on your favorite podcasting platform. It is insanely helpful to us. And if you don't quite think we make the five stars, drop us an email. Our contact details are in the link tree in the show notes. So today we're talking about introducing fantastical elements into otherwise Earth-realistic settings, getting that perfect mix of realism and wonder. It's a big topic, so we brought in some help. Hi, I'm Andrew Zimpa. I'm a medieval fantasy writer and author of In Times of War, A Tale of Ardalancor. Now, before we get started here in earnest, I think it's important that we get a grip on the type of world Andrew's creating. So we asked him that question, that great question you should ask every author. What's your book about? It's a tale of the nation of Ardalancor, but really based on the individuals who inhabit the realm. And it's a fast-paced, multi-point of view story, really focused on the lives and times of people during immense struggle. Uh, upheaval, betrayal, um, you know, very simple concepts of friendship, loyalty, but in a very immersive world. Andrew had introduced himself to me as an amateur historian, and I'd gotten a chance to start reading his book, available in the show notes, by the way. And I noticed that there were many references to medieval history and culture in what he was writing. There was a density to it, a groundedness to it amidst the fantasy elements. I was getting a bit of a George Martin vibe, so I asked him about it. Yes, I would say George George Martin definitely was an influence. I've wanted to write a book for probably 20 plus years, and the ideas just kind of lingered around. Yeah. I'm a huge history buff, yeah. so a lot of the intrigue and machinations that you find in history, which also inspired George Martin, same for me as well. And I think he was part of the catalyst of writing this particular book when I saw Game of Thrones and, and started to read it myself in terms of here's multiple vantage points of you know central events, but seen from multiple different sides. And it's difficult to write history if you're following someone in an army, because a lot of that time is downtime. So that's yeah. what I struggled with, with writing historical fiction was, how do I make things interesting for a character who, if they're going to follow events, you know, this army is going to stop for months. So what yeah. happens there? So for me, starting with a blank slate was actually easier in terms of I can, I can make things up, I can create it, and I can move the action around. So it's, you get a cohesive story, but told from multiple points of view, and you get different angles on, on the same events. So yeah, that was, a big, that was a big inspiration to me saying, you know what, I, I can do this. So this is, this is the method I'm going to take. So it's it's fascinating to me because I, I see I see those parallels in a love of history. And um, you know, it's when, when we read through history, I feel like we're kind of collecting evidence from different vantage points and different viewpoints throughout it. You don't get to 
choose to get that one perspective all the way through. You get fragments. And it feels like part of the job of the practice of history would be to form a cohesive narrative out of all the little bits that you get, if that makes any sense. And it seems almost like your book is a reverse engineering of that. (laughs) Yeah, most definitely. And I tried to use history as inspiration, but not model it on any one particular period in history. I wanted it to be something where I didn't know what was going to happen. And there were additional beats of, um, I'm here, but what happens next? And I wasn't necessarily following a broader historical narrative, but what would these characters do next? Not that it's the best thing to do, not that it's the perfect thing to do, but based on whatever is going on with them, based on their own limitations, their own advantages, pressure being put on them from even their own supporters or different factions, where do they get forced to next? And that was really part of the creative process of not necessarily where this book is going to end, at least initially. I mean, it all came together and definitely an element of planning is, or more than an element of planning is certainly needed. But to me, it was the discovery of when I would get stuck to say, what happens next? What would these people do next? And that that was really the richness of world building. I've heard that you can divide novelists into a few distinct camps. A spectrum might be a better way of wording. There's plotters who plan things out concretely. They know what's coming next, who's doing what. They know not only where they are going, but how they're going to get there. Then you have pantsers who fly by the seat of their pants. They have a sense of where they're going, and they may have some plot points in mind, but mostly they just hammer keys and out comes the story. They let editors figure out the rest. There's another type, a gardener. Essentially, a gardener sets up their world, their story, their characters, and cultivates them. I'd argue that what Andrew is doing here is a form of gardening. Using the fertile soil of a medieval fantasy setting, something that everyone's familiar with, following that passion of historical fiction, then saying, given these circumstances, what should this character do next? I think this is a fascinating approach and can lead to some rich character development and even richer world development. But more on that in a moment. Next, we started talking about some sources of inspiration for this kind of work, where he got some of his world building ideas from. Yeah, this is my this is my first book. I've done world building in other, let's say, other forums like Civilization Two or D anD D or things like that. Civ Four. Uh, so that was, two. it's been a minute, sorry. It's, 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 I'm dating myself, but it's, it's classic Civ four is another great so game with a multiplayer. And that kind of taught me about building a world and are you setting up a world or are you setting a world in motion Yeah. in terms of things may look to be like on equal footing, but 50 turns in a hundred turns in, they look very differently just in terms of linear progression or research capabilities or things and playing with multiple friends it was interesting to see what i thought was parody as people are playing like did you mean to make this as difficult as uh, as you did for me i'm like no i i i didn't intend that i'm sorry so yeah just kind of looking at multiple factions multiple dynamic players and also the same thing within D D, kind of everybody wants to win everybody wants to do their best and how do all these forces collide that was a lot of good uh, good fodder for me in terms of thinking through okay I want to write I wanted to write a story that was very simple at one level in terms of values of 
you know, friendship, camaraderie, just the, yeah, 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 the, yeah. the extreme tension of and betrayal of war, but at the same time layering in all these intricate levels that hopefully add to the story. If people aren't interested in like, they, they grasp it on a visceral level, but then if they want to explore further, there's all these little hints and notes that, uh, that go along with it as well. But just seeing some of the reality of that with playing with friends, whether D&D or Civ, mm-hmm. It kind of it kind of gave me an insight of um, how things actually fit together when they're launched, and then just trying to build the world. One of the hallmarks of medieval fantasy is the castle. Yeah. But if, if you, let's just talk about D and D. If you put a castle, yeah, yeah, yeah. like the greatest, strongest, most defensible European castle, you put it in D and D, and immediately it's indefensible. It's obsolete, right? With the monster manual, with all of the spells, with yeah, yeah wild shape with, uh, you know, different, uh, ancestries where you can fly different, uh, you know, and you quickly run through all the spell lists or even some of the monsters that can burrow, or you've got a wizard that can polymorph or a druid that can wild shape. As, as I mentioned, it's quickly like, how do you defend this castle? Yeah. And you only build the castle. You spend all that time, all that money just in doing it because it works. It's a false. It's a force multiplier, right? It, you can yeah. you can hold this particular you know, building, this fort, with very few people, right? Yeah. To put your stamp and your imprint in the land. But if you put it in D and D, unless you start to think about what are all of the defenses, what are all the countermeasures that have to be in place, or you start. And this is this is my own process. I'm saying you, but just kind of yeah, speaking yeah, generally, yeah. this is my process. I think for it. Everybody should build the world that they want, but this is just just my process of asking questions. Yeah, I think that's In, great. Uh, invisibility. How do you counteract that? Or disguise self? Or everybody loves charm person, right? So, yeah. With all these things, if these are present in your world, what are the defenses? Especially for those who are most powerful and most knowledgeable in the world, they yeah. would be aware of these things. Now, maybe there isn't a exact defense to each thing. But should be for a lot of these. Otherwise, why would you build such an expensive structure if it immediately becomes untenable? So a lot of it for me was, how does all this fit together? Because I wanted to have one. It's kind of a national struggle level. Yeah, that's kind of it. That's kind of in the background. Like world building to me is the iceberg, and the yeah. story, character driven, drama driven. That's that's the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So how do all these things feed up? even if it's behind the scenes or things I'm kind of thinking about, and maybe it's just one or two lines in the story, but how do all these things feed together? Yeah. And I thought I've, I've got to be more, I've got to be more restrictive with magic. Yeah. Some of these things I like the motif. I like the motif of dragons and griffins, but just my, my book isn't dragon driven. I think there's an, there's enough prominent books out there with that, but, uh, I wanted to have the imagery of it. Like I wanted to have that as a recollection and something in the memory Mm. of the people. But basically dragons don't exist currently. And it was basically people and dragons can't coexist. Yeah. And it was like, there's going to be a fight for dominance immediately between between these two. So that was just the, the path I took. But a lot of it was, how do I set this up where it's exciting? It's great storytelling. But at the same time, I'm not getting too far out in front of myself in terms of making something so grand that it really is undefeatable 
And then how is there tension and conflict and in parity between, between groups? Now, it's not to say some have advantages in some areas and other groups in different areas, but how do they play their best game? But if one is too strong, then, it, then it's over quickly, right? If you've got a F-15 fighter jet or F-16 yeah. flying around, the, the cavalry probably doesn't stand too much of a chance. So it was putting all those things together. And then also with magic, I wanted to have powerful magic, but also done in a way that spellcasters are still vulnerable. Yeah, they still yeah. can be in danger. And depending on the circumstances, you know, whether someone is, if it's a showdown, like an old, an old West showdown where you've got a wizard and somebody with a bow, can that wizard get that spell off quick enough? Is it going to hit yeah. the mark, right? Versus somebody who's got the bow. So things like that was just, there's just a lot of layers in parity with it. So a lot of it was just, how does this all coalesce? And then ultimately, how do I, inject these things in in a character-driven, drama-driven. I mean, for me, world building was, do you feel like you're riding alongside people, right? If there's if there's a cavalry charge or people bracing yeah. against a charge or just just some real heartfelt moments, do you feel like you're there with the character? Immersion. So immersion. Yeah, yeah, most definitely. Well, do you feel like you're riding along? I'll admit to geeking out during his description of his world building methodology. It feels like a coalescing or crystallizing of a bunch of ideas that we've been developing in the World Craft Club. Andrew had identified his first luck, the fairy cake or core concept of his setting, and by asking questions from the perspective of an audience member or visitant, had gently cultivated a setting that feels earthy and grounded while simultaneously expansive and elevating. This is the tension that exists between the two biggest drivers of solid world building, immersion and wonder. This is the bridge between them. Asking good questions. This notion of an iceberg I found particularly compelling. The idea of a story being the tip that everyone sees, but the world building underneath is also there to be explored in the depths below for the brave and curious. Next, I wanted to explore a little bit more of what he was saying about balancing magic, and I think his answer here is fascinating, but I'll leave a lot of myself in here as I lay up this question. What you've done, uh, and I, I like this, is that you seem to have basically gone like, I'm introducing these fantastical elements in here, and some of the common tropes that you would find in a medieval setting, in a, in a fantasy setting, like a castle, are going to have to be adapted to this. And not only that, but you're going to have to look at the characters on the other end. It's like, not only how do the countermeasures exist, but how can I put the people wielding the magic in a position where their skills are perhaps rare, or they are difficult to wield? or have li sufficient limitations that you can kind of like reasonably put that guy with the bow up against them. And there's a chance, there's a chance of success, you know, even if, even if it's a slim one. So like, I got to ask, like what, what breaks uh, did you, did you put on your magic wielding characters to sort of, sort of e ease up on them a little bit? I, I, the term would be nerf. How did you nerf your magic users a little bit to make them more grounded? Well, I think you reference a lot of great things just in terms of magic or fantastical creatures of mm. rarity, proximity, yeah. like, is this something that lives north of the wall or is it right next door, right? That makes a difference. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. And, then, and then also barriers to entry. So with, with the magical system, this isn't exactly explained like this in the book, but if you think of 
you're going to conjure the the elements of the world and right and try to shape them in a certain way. So maybe the analog to that is electricity. Yeah. If electricity is going to flow through someone, hmm. that casting a spell is a dangerous proposition. Hmm. You have to be very good in terms of channeling this flow. Now there's there's scales of the types of spells or how broad or how intense it is, but that was kind of the that was the big check that yeah. nothing nothing is taken for granted even if you're an extremely adept and competent spellcaster like then yeah. it becomes a little bit easy but the average person is not going to say abracadabra and something's going to happen right yeah. it's kind of like wim hof right the Iceman. like he does these extreme challenges he'll be in a pair of shorts and running shoes and out out, out in the ice somewhere Right or yeah. these these really endurance challenges. Now you could copy everything that he's doing, but probably wouldn't have the same fortitude that he does because it's okay. also what is his mindset, right? And to yeah. tap into these things, and so I want so I, I don't explain it necessarily in, in that way, but I tried to show that there's a cost to magic, and yeah. you've got to be in a zen-like state to cast or bad things could happen, up to and including death. So I want to point out this helpful rubric for world building that Andrew has laid out. Rarity, proximity, barriers to entry. As he lays out his magic system, we know we don't want every man and their dog wielding powerful magical abilities, but we do want them to exist within the setting. So he asks three questions to curtail the influence of magic, but still leave it as a mysterious and powerful force. When your world building asks those three questions, how rare is the thing? Is it nearby? And is there anything that would stop a person from mastering these arcane skills? I think this is a great place to start with anything in a setting where you want to curtail its influence a little bit and sort of uh, nerf it a bit. But these sorts of questions as we answer them also lead to more questions and more of a fleshing out of the world. So I started to ask a little bit more deeply into the factions and institutions that help cultivate magic users. And I got a great answer. I like the I like the risk element in there as well. And the idea that you're channeling something that is inherently dangerous. And I can see definitely a competent magic user being extremely dangerous and capable. Um, but I can also see that it would be extremely difficult to get there. And it, there, there could be elements like I could see like the way you make it sound as well with um, the mindset is it's almost like your personality could kind of get in the way of being a competent magic user. It seems like there needs to be a lot of uh, sort of that, that sort of Zen like qualities of a patience or stoicism to, to, to get very good at it. So there almost needs to be like a, a, a personal disposition uh, as, as well, not to, you know, try to try to put your magic system in a box. I'm sure there there's always exceptions, but like that, that to me is really, really interesting. Like there'd be that question, do, do you have the temperament to like get your head around this and different schools as well? I can imagine disagreeing. So like, I, I like this idea about your asking of questions and your your that that style of developing the world. You went for here's the thing I want to do, 
And then he sort of started asking questions around it until the world sort of filled in the gaps. And I like this idea that your story is at the peak of the world building sort of iceberg. And you're kind of trying to get everything to sort of filter up into that space. It's almost like the roots of a tree drawing all the water in and up and like wanting your wanting your audience to like always be experiencing, you know, parts of your world, even if they don't have full clarity. I like this idea, you know, feeling like people are in amongst the cavalry charge and being kind of enmeshed in that. How, what, what sort of detail and fleshing out do you tend to throw in? Because I feel, I, I sense from you that you like to leave some things open-ended in order to leave the audience that, that sort of flexibility, but you're also going to have to give them like enough that they can sort of draw the trend line. You know what I mean? Can you give me some examples, if you like, of ways that you teased the broader setting? I guess just another general world building tip to lead into this is, is, is one to be open to your own questions and kind of explore from different angles. But I was talking to someone who had really no grasp of the medieval fantasy genre, just just wasn't his thing. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, if there, if there are wizards, I said, yeah, they're, they're wizards. He said, well, if I had wizards, I would want to make sure that my wizards had as many kids as possible because then I would have more wizards. He goes, do you have something like that? And I said, well, no, you know, I hadn't, I hadn't thought of that piece of the world as of yet. Um, and I thought, well, would this be in our Dalincor? And I thought it's a good question because it, it leads to other ones. One, is there some kind of hereditary trait that would lead you to be a spellcaster? That's an important world building question, which I hadn't initially contemplated. There's going to be an infinite number of questions that that you don't contemplate along the way. So just being open to that was was good for me. I thought, well, one, is there a hereditary piece of this? And then two, if someone had kids, like you had said before, do you have the singular purpose and focus knowing how dangerous magic is? Like, how did those two things compete? Like just taking care of your family, raising your family and focus on this. And they're not mutually exclusive. And I actually say this because yeah. it gets it gets into just kind of what is the life of a wizard and what kind of path do they choose? So having children and, and being a, an astute caster of magic aren't in and of themselves mutually exclusive. But part of this is there's a, what's called the Zaravandian order. So the order is yeah. like the preeminent magic magical group right they kind of have a monopoly not entirely but in our dalincor they they kind of run the show when it comes to magic but there's always exceptions and you know tension at the margins but part of it is if if they're going to teach you magic and it's something where you don't you don't show up as like in a midlife crisis and say hey i want to i want to learn this thing but part of it is how willing are you so there's a lot of training preparation discipline are you committed to this group because family is also, you, you may pick your family over the order at some point, right? So yeah. it, that just that simple question led to a lot of additional searching and creation of the world and tied in, like a lot of this is, here's the big iceberg of world building, but then it feeds into characters. So there, there is some tension there. Well, what if somebody has a kid? Right? What yeah. happens, or what if there's children between two of the members of the order? Mm. You know, so that, that forms some of the backdrop and context to to the story as well. So, I just what you said was like, yeah, I was following 
as I was talking and you, you were just riffing on, it was like, yeah, that was the same train of thought that I took about what, what is your focus and, yeah. and how does that manifest in terms of, we're going to teach you this. So your loyalty needs to be here, but then also it, it's not a hereditary thing. So, you know, that was also an important piece for me too of, okay, that just helps us, me understand how the world is constructed and it's at least accessible in general, but there's huge barriers to entry. But part of it is you could find somebody who maybe displays some inclinations and train them. And it's not just restricted to particular families or groups as well. So all of that was just grist for the mill and thinking of, you know, different backstories for, for people and um, how they interact and just different tensions within, within the groups. So here, Andrew has answered an important question in his setting and has created depth by talking with someone who had no interest in the genre and was just sort of ad-libbing on what they thought might be important within that setting. I mean, it's a pretty solid question. Why not try to make more wizards? It led Andrew down some unexpected paths and caused him to further develop and refine one of his key factions. I'd say that the outcomes there make total sense. This is how a wizarding institution would form itself given the magical system that's been established and its constraints. We then continued our dive into this faction and talked more about the implications of his magic system. I really, I really, really like that because there are, there are so many possibilities with that because the question always that you want to ask is like, if everyone's capable of magic, why isn't everyone doing it? You know, it's like if, if everyone yeah. could fly, why wouldn't you just fly? And the idea that you, that the training is, is so rigorous and involved and so, and requires such attention and focus that you'd almost be essentially saying, Hey, you know, you, you really don't get to have a family. I can kind of see how an organization may wish to adopt similar sorts of constraints in order to, to maximize the potential of their students and to kind of go like, look, you really need to, your attention needs to be here and having a family would be tricky, but then somebody could have like, you know, they could have a child they're not aware of. There's the element of stoicism with it. Yeah. But there also is, you know, people may sneak out from time to time and it's kind of the duality of they shouldn't be doing it, but they're also testing other skills. Like, can they do things discreetly? That's, that's also a valuable skill. Yeah. to the order as well. Now, if there's consequences to that or significant consequences, well, then that may lead to certain repercussions for the, for the member as well. But I try to think of, there, there are people too, right? And there's going to be tensions and desires and how does that manifest? And then how does the group deal with it as well? So there's a little bit of gray with, with all of these things. And, and that's, that's some of the subtext and layering with each of these different groups and hierarchical orders and this kind of balance or tension between groups. And there's, they, um, they, they snipe or take shots at each other, just in, in verbally speaking or in different ways, it's not kind of absolutes with, within each of the groups. So that, that was interesting to, to explore. So as we begin to draw to a close here in uh, breaking from our normal process, I'm actually going to let our guest sum up our key takeaways because I think he does it better than I will. I think the biggest thing is you don't have to start with a blank slate. Yeah. You can, you can use some analog if you need to and just riff off of that, right? I think, I think part of the fun is making your own world, but don't feel like you have to start with a blank slate. 
being willing to ask questions and look at things from different angles. Like, well, if this side was trying to win, how would they do it? And if this side was trying to win, how would they do it? Um, And and then just focusing on where are the, where are the focus areas of your story? If it's a military confrontation or if it's courtly intrigue and etiquette, just really trying to hone in on those areas and think about those counterfactuals and well, what if the opposite was true? Why is this true? And just being open to that discovery process. I think that's really the, the greatest part of world building. I think Andrew summed that up really well. Don't be afraid to work with what you know. If history is your thing, start there. Your core concept doesn't need to be original. Then color that setting with questions and work on creating the deeper parts of that iceberg. Oh, and don't forget to look Andrew up. So the book In Times of War, A Tale of Ardalancourt is available on Amazon. Uh, you can also check out free chapters at ardalancourt.com or come by Instagram at ardalancourt and uh, quotes, videos, and just check it out there as well. So that's it for today. We hope you enjoyed that episode of the Worldcraft Club podcast. Be sure to check out the World Builders Journal if you haven't already, an innovative tool that we've created to help you practice the stuff you learn in this podcast. Oh, and don't forget about the Discord community, a rich community that's there to help you practice and hone your world building skills. Links to all this are available in the link tree in the show notes. Until next time, I'm James, and you've been listening to the Worldcraft Club podcast. See you next time.